slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. I'm Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we will be interviewing David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective about the lack of accountability and duty of care in regards to the spreading of COVID-19 in detention. David will essentially report on a rally where refugee supporters protested on 7th November outside the Park Hotel on Swanson Street, Carlton, Victoria. Next, we will hear from Dr Maria O'Sullivan, Associate Professor, Senior Lecturer, Faculty of Law and a member of the Carston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. We will interview her about the Public Health and Wellbeing Pandemic Management Bill 2021, currently before the Victorian Parliament, which will hopefully bring some transparency and accountability. This bill comes during unprecedented times. Does the Victorian Charter of Human Rights need strengthening? Will temporary measures of intensified surveillance become permanent features of society? Maria will talk about the positives and also discuss some of the negatives in regards to the bill. We will then speak with Mina Singh, proud Yorta Yorta woman and senior advisor from the Human Rights Law Centre about raising the age for criminal responsibility to 12, a missed opportunity to protect children. We will continue our discussion with Leanne Carter, who is a statewide leader um, of, of various Aboriginal programs. She is from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. 22 of the 46 men detained in the hotel have tested positive to COVID-19, that is, the Park Hotel, since 17th October. We have interviewed refugee supporters and refugees themselves quite extensively on this show in regards to the pandemic. Seven of the men are still being treated in the hotel and one is still being treated in hospital. We will hear from David shortly to give an update on the coronavirus situation and report back on the rally. Hello, David. Welcome to the program. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. And just to correct myself there and enlighten listeners, you just heard an announcement about the rent relief grants. And I will now welcome David to the program. Hello, David. Hello, Marissa. Thank you very yes. much for having me back on the show. Oh, it's lovely to have you back, David, and you know, you've been with us quite a few times on the show now. 
Now, I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of background and an update on what's happening with COVID-19 and refugees and essentially also report back on the rally that recently happened. Yeah, sure. Well, as you, as you said, there are 46 refugees who are um, being held in the Park Hotel or the Park Hotel Prison, as we prefer to call it, which is in Carlton on Swanson Street next to Lincoln Square. The good news is all 22 men have now recovered from COVID and one man who was in hospital has been returned to the hotel. We had, we did have hope that the medical staff would refuse to return him because it wasn't a safe place to be, but unfortunately that didn't, uh, didn't work out. So the good news is all 22 men have survived COVID uh, and you know, no loss of life and, and hopefully no long-term injuries. The bad news is they're still there, they're still locked up, um, for more than eight years now by the Australian government. Having said that, three men were released on the weekend, three from the Park Hotel and one man from MITRE, which is a camp um, detention centre up on Camp Road in Broadmeadows. So it's almost like a form of torture. Uh, The men are held uh, indefinitely. They get COVID. Their, Their mates get COVID. They recover from COVID. A few are released. Nobody knows why those four people have been released on bridging visas and why the others haven't. And so it's that psychological torture which continues, which means the men still in the Park Hotel and elsewhere in Mitre and so on um, are living their lives in in total abject misery. That is indeed a mixture of good and bad news, but... The, the thing is now that there are inequalities, aren't there, in terms of access to testing and vaccines? Yes, well, there are inequalities all the way through the system. So people who arrive by air are allowed to live in the community while their um, asylum, uh, asylum claims are, are resolved. These men aren't. People who came before uh, Kevin Rudd slammed, shut the door in um, the middle of 2013, were allowed to settle into the community. Those who arrived the day after the government changed its policy, and some of these men only arrived on Christmas Island on Australian territory within days of that policy changing eight and a half years ago, um, they're, they're still locked up. Absolute inequality. And then when it came to uh, COVID, we've warned for 18 months that being trapped in a hotel... Uh, with no vento- no outside ventilation, with guards who don't keep their distance, who are constantly coming in and out of the building, would lead to a COVID outbreak. It didn't happen 18 months ago, but it did happen last month, and 22 men suffered. And having COVID is not fun, even if you uh, survive the process. Some people carry, carry symptoms or carry long COVID for uh, many weeks and and, and months and month to come. So huge, huge inequality. And then, as I say, there's the fact that some of these men, and overwhelmingly they were brought here under the Medivac legislation, which said if you were being held as a refugee or asylum seeker on Nauru or on, in Papua New Guinea by the Australian government and you needed medical attention, that could be physical, that could be psychological, that couldn't be delivered there, you could be brought to this country for treatment. And they've been brought here, and most of them have been here for two years. Most of them have had no treatment. And then every now and then, the government lets some people out. But in some ways, the uncertainty is what is doing people's heads in. There was um, a coroner's inquiry very recently about a man who committed suicide some years ago in Nauru. Uh, another, one of the many tragic cases, which is part of the refugee story. And the coroner was explicit. He said that this particular man was destroyed by the uncertainty, by not knowing what was going to happen in his life. And he went from being young, bright, positive person to being destroyed to the point where, tragically, he took his own life. And as, as listeners would know, if someone is in the prison system in this country, they know their release date. Whether they're there for the good reason or bad, they know when the doors will open and they will be released. These refugees have no idea 
if they'll be held for another eight days, eight weeks, months, or years to come. And it is, it is such terrible cruelty when all of these refugees have been accepted as refugees by the Australian government, when there are tiny handfuls of people who could be welcomed into our community, given permanent visas, and allowed to rebuild their lives. And that's why we protest. You mentioned the protest. We actually protested on three successive weekends outside the Park Hotel. Um, despite, you know, there was, at the beginning there were some COVID uh, restrictions, but we still made sure that we were out there uh, in Lincoln Square. We had speakers from... Uh, we had a Labour MP. We had a Greens MP. We had refugees, of course, themselves speaking from inside the hotel and those who had been released. We had a speaker from the Victorian Faithful Council and, 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 and many more. And we sent a very clear message to the men in the hotel that despite the lockdown, when we had to disappear, um, we had not forgotten them and the campaign will not let them down. And we sent a message to the government via the media that we were back on the streets once again after a very short break and we will keep on fighting for the freedom of, of, of these refugees. Absolutely. And so, and there was a speaker from the Greens as well, was there? Yeah, we had um, actually online, uh, Lydia spoke. Uh, she wasn't able to attend in person, but she spoke by phone. We did have Senator Janet Rice uh, speak at the third rally, and we had the Federal Labor MP, Jake Carney from Cooper, um, uh, speak I think it was at the, the second rally, uh, as, as well as speakers, as I say, from the union movement and from across the refugee movement. It is indeed most concerning and a national shame that these refugees have been left to languish in detention whilst recovering from coronavirus and not having all that treatment and nurturing that people in the community would have. Absolutely. These people could and should be welcomed into the community. Um, I, I believe all refugees on temporary visas and all refugees in onshore and offshore detention should be welcomed into the community. This is the 13th or 14th richest country in the world. The government is planning to spend $100 billion on a bunch of submarines. They gave $38 billion to very profitable businesses under the JobKeeper program. And yet they try and scare people by saying, if we let 1,000 people into our communities and give them the basic support so that they can find their feet and find their way, mm. that somehow is a threat to ordinary people in the community. Well, I think it's submarine programs that are a threat. It's uh, the government's climate change inaction, in which is, is the threat. And the refugees are our brothers and sisters. These are our fellow workers. These should be our neighbours and these should be our workmates. And Refugee Action Collective is campaigning for every one of them to have permanency and the right to build their lives in safety in this country. The government says it will do that for small numbers of Afghan refugees, but yet there are Afghan refugees locked up in the park hotels. There are Afghan refugees in misery in Indonesia who were trying to get to Australia and were told that they would never, ever come here by Tony Abbott. So the government says it's concerned about Afghan refugees, as an example, and yet it leaves Afghan refugees in utter misery as a direct result, not of the Taliban, but of Australian government policy. So these are all parts of the story which Refugee Action Collective is taking up and, uh, and uh, campaigning over. And I should say to listeners, our next uh, protest, Outside the Park Hotel is coming up on Friday, December the 10th at 6.30. Friday, December the 10th is International Human Rights Day. And we will be gathering in a vigil, uh, a protest outside uh, the Park Hotel. We will have musicians, we will have singers, we will have drummers, we will have artists, we will have some politicians, and of course we will have refugees speaking from inside and outside the hotel, including some of the men who were released this weekend. So if people can join us Friday, December the 10th, it's not that, not too far away now, at 6.30 outside the Park Hotel. The bigger the crowd, the bigger the message. 
David, thank you so much for coming onto the program, and I'm really glad that you've you've actually described where the rally, the next rally, is going to be. And look, a shout out to the refugees that have also been released because they've got no money, and they're 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 effectively being uh, only be given three three weeks of accommodation. Three weeks accommodation. They've been given some Woolworths vouchers, but they don't they don't have any form of transport. They don't have Mikey cards. And where they've been dumped into a motel, um, they live an hour's walk away from the nearest Woolworth supermarket. So, I mean, it's just a complete lack of humanity, even at the point where they're allowed to walk out the door. And, of course, they're wrapped. uh, And they want to see all their brothers in the Park Hotel join them. Even at that point, the government just sticks in the knife and twists it. It is cruel and it is racist and it has to stop. And we need to get that happening. David, thank you so much for rally happening. Thank you so much for coming onto the program. And we'll talk very soon. Take care. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on Show. Our next interview will be with with Dr. Maria O'Sullivan, who's the Associate Professor at Monash University and also a Senior Lecturer. And we're going to be speaking with her, um, as I said in my introduction at the beginning of the show, we're going to be speaking with her about the, the Pandemic Bill 2021. Quite a few people have made comments on it, um, including um, Dr. O'Sullivan, and indeed, I was reading the other day the position paper that's been read at, that's been prepared by the Law Institute of Victoria, and the Human Rights Law Centre have also commented on on this as well. Hello, Maria. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's lovely to have you. Now, Maria, there's been quite a lot, hasn't there? And we've had far right protests, and we've had comments, positive comments, and and also concerns about. The bill. Could you just um, talk to listeners about um, just a brief summary of the bill and discuss a few concerns and positives? Sure. So we have the Public Health Wellbeing Act of 2008, which is the current legislation, but it's not really fit for purpose. And so this pandemic bill provides a lot more oversight and clarity about the public health powers. So we say it's more fit for purpose. I think the Victorian government have looked at New South Wales and New Zealand to ensure that we are, you know, um, fairly consistent with other jurisdictions. So some of the advantages are the transparency. We have now in the bill a requirement that the chief health officer advise 
and the Statement of Compatibility with the Victorian Charter both have to be put on a website. Now, that's within 14 days of the pandemic declaration being made, and some people say that should be shortened, but there is clearly a transparency improvement. The other thing also is the involvement of the scrutiny um, parliamentary committee, and again, that is an improvement because it involves parliament. They're all improvements. Oh, the other thing is that QR codes also get an enhanced protection. And I've personally been concerned about some of the Privacy Act um, problems with law enforcement officials accessing QR codes. So there's some of the good things. In terms of the improvements that could be made, firstly, there is a provision about an aggravated offence. And that basically says if someone knows or reasonably could know that they were um, either had COVID or had been exposed to COVID, they can be fined a very significant amount of money or be put in prison for two years. So I think that is disproportionate. And I can talk about that in more detail in a moment. Sure. The other thing is that they try to define a protected attribute under discrimination law to essentially allow for discrimination. And I think that is problematic. Uh, thirdly, the, there is no provision for safe protest. And I think there should be an amendment to allow for that. And then lastly, there is no upper limit for detention for public health reasons and there is no independent oversight. Those are very legitimate concerns. Are you able to just elaborate on those? Yes. So if I can talk to the, the safe protest issue, as we saw last year with the Black Lives Matter protest, we had... Um, you know, challenges in the court about that and we had some discrepancy between judges as to whether those protests should go ahead. My belief is that protests should be conceptualised as an essential activity under COVID restrictions in the same way that exercise and shopping is conceptualised as an essential activity. So that has to be put into place because the protest is actually impliedly protected under our constitution, so it is actually a very special part of our constitution and democracy. In terms of the uh, problematic aggravated offence provision, there is some uh, example of that in Western Australia. They also do have an aggravated offence provision. It's imprisonment for one year. I do think a two-year imprisonment is too much. And for your listeners, basically, the provision says if you know or reasonably know you may have been exposed to COVID, you can be given this aggravated offence. I think the terms of that are too vague. I think if it was to be retained, there shouldn't be imprisonment, only a fine system, and the criteria should be more uh, narrowly defined. Uh, and then in relation to detention, um, there was always a red flag when you're talking about detention for public health reasons because the test is whether it's reasonably necessary for public health. And there is no other limit for detention in the bill at the moment. And I always want to see an upper limit because otherwise, technically, the detention can be indefinite. Really? In, that, that, that is very concerning, Maria. Yes, so um, the viewers may have heard of the infamous case of Alcatel back in 2004, which involved an asylum seeker who was um, subject to indefinite detention because they couldn't be given a visa here, but neither could they be returned to their country of origin. So the High Court said, yes, it is possible under our constitution to indefinitely detain someone. So that's why I'm concerned about this current provision in the pandemic bill, because it doesn't have another limit. And these haven't been discussed by the parliament? Yes, they have been discussed. If I can talk about, for example, the aggravated offence provision. Sure. What the government has said, this is where you know you reasonably know that you have been exposed to COVID and say you go to a protest and your mask falls off and then you can be charged with this. Well, the government has said in Hansard that they don't intend for this to be used in this way, that it wouldn't be used for protesting and it wouldn't be used in relation to mask wearing. It would primarily be used for someone who knows they have COVID and still go to work so that with intent. The only problem I have is that 
the provision as stated um, is liable to be used for that and there's no answer to um, that concern that, you know, the politicians at the moment have said that they don't intend that to be used in that way, in, you know, an over-policed way, because I think theoretically it could be. And remember, this pandemic bill, if legislated, will be in place for the next 20 or 30 years. So what the politicians are saying at the moment is not going to um, circumscribe what happens in the future. Exactly. I mean, it's, it sounds most concerning, particularly because um, protest is not even put in there as an essential activity. So there can yes. be room for very, very excessive police powers. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's transparent. You know, it's, it's good that, you know, there are provisions in terms of the Victorian Charter of Human Rights, but it also sounds a little bit contradictory. Uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a fair criticism, I think. So for your listeners, you know, we've got the Victorian Charter of Human Rights, which sets out things like freedom of movement, freedom of association, etc. And, of course, those have all been restricted under the curfew, the stay-at-home directions and so forth. Now, the disadvantage of the current legislation is that there is no obligation on the government to publish the compatibility with the Charter, um, because the COVID restrictions are made by the executive. So this is an improvement to say that, yeah, the, the compatibility with the charter should be published on a website. And that's really good because then everyone can look at it. Similarly, the Chief Health Officer advice also has to be put on the website. That's definitely in the bill. It is contradictory in that then you've got this other provision saying that if we discriminate based on vaccination status, or age, for example, if we say that, you know, with vaccine passports, people under 16 may not be able to be vaccinated and therefore some vaccine mandate may indirectly discriminate, um, that, that sort of carve-out or limitation on the equal opportunity legislation somewhat contradicts um, the emphasis on human rights. In terms of the vaccine, you mean? So basically, if you've got some COVID restriction or vaccine mandate and it indirectly impacts someone either on their religious beliefs or their age, so you might say, um, you know, everyone has to be vaccinated and you can't go, you, I don't know, can't go to some public space mm -hmm. if you're not vaccinated, but of course under 16s can't access it, then that's a case of indirect discrimination because under 16s can't access the vaccine. So what the bill currently does is that, um, uh, yes, the Equal Opportunity Act is limited in its scope to public health. Maria, thank you so much for explaining this. I mean, no wonder the, the Law Institute is of the firm view, and I quote from the position paper, um, that the bill in its current form falls short of achieving objectives and expresses concern that it does not sufficiently protect the rights of Victorians. I'm not saying that the bill is bad. I mean, it, it, in effect, you know, it, 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 it is transparent, but I have been thinking about these issues that you've raised today. Yes, and I think the concerns expressed by the Law Institute were very comprehensive. I would commend their position paper to your read, to your listeners. It was really good. Absolutely. Do Google the, the, the Law Institute and um, it, it, it's, it's very concerning. So what can be done? I believe the bill has passed the lower house. Is that right? Yes, and it's been debated in the upper house, I think, in a few days, I think on Thursday. Most concerning. What can be done actually to counteract some of these concerns? Well, I think the crossbenchers and the opposition have some amendments in mind, particularly related to some of those things I just spoke about. Um, of course, you can also write to your uh, local member, your, your state member, and express your concerns, and you can get on social media. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the law community is quite agreed on some of the, the core issues. There may be a little bit of disagreement as to the form an amendment should take. For example, some people want detention to be um, 
uh, overseen by the Victorian Tribunal, VCAT. Others may want the Ombudsman. We might disagree somewhat as to which mechanism should provide the oversight, but I think there's agreement that things like detention should be subject to external oversight. So I think the law community has come together really well and set out some of the amendments that need to be made, and that makes the job of the parliamentarians a little bit easier, I think, in structuring their... Um, proposals. I mean, a particular concern is the fact that what if, you know, it may be 10 years before another pandemic happens. I, I find this very, very challenging. Yes, and that's why we've got to make sure that the text of the provisions in the bill are clearly set out and have criteria because if politicians say, well, we don't intend for these things to be used in a certain way, that won't, will not bind any future government. Um, so it's a very important that anything that is concerning, for example, in relation to protected attributes under discrimination law, the aggravated offence, um, the remit of detention is all clearly set out in the draft legislation. Maria, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's been a most productive discussion. And Great, I, it was a pleasure. It was lovely to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you and good afternoon. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Melbourne, I found a food not bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Councils around the country will put on just... Disability Day events, and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour, and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think, you know, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. 
We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And it's approximately 4.35 and you've just tuned into the Do and Time show. Um, if you, in case you've just tuned in. Oh, it's been a long day. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and the Human Rights Law Centre are calling a proposal made at a meeting of attorneys generals to develop a plan to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 12 years old, an absolute missed opportunity to look after children. Both medical evidence and international standards put 14 years as the minimum age a child should be held criminally responsible. So to talk about the proposal, um, and I've actually quoted from a media release put out by the Human Rights Law Centre, I'm going to be speaking with Leanne Carter, who we've had on the show a few times now. She's the statewide community justice programs leader at um, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And I want to speak to her about what she feels is happening and discuss um, these very important issues. Hello, Leanne. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. How are you going? Oh, it's lovely to have you. Leanne, just as a protocol, can you just um, say what land you're from? Wurundjeri uh, and Noongar, and I'm standing on the Kulin Nations of Wurundjeri people today. Wonderful. Leanne, talk to me. What's What's been going on with this uh, proposal about criminal responsibility? Isn't this devastating? It is. Look... Uh, the battle for raising age of criminal responsibility has been going on for a few years now. And I think what's really frustrating is this recent decision, it's not actually a decision to raise the age to 12. What it is, it's simply a statement that's been made right. that they're talking about developing a proposal. Now, when you put it in perspective, a few years ago, the well, the Attorney Generals have been sitting on a proposal that they actually sourced and from their own working group, after they've been consulted wild, you know, wildly with the public and on the question of raising the age, they've refused to release the report. They've refused to release the public submissions. So what they're simply saying is that even though all the recommendations have said that the very minimum is 14, they're now discussing about making, you know, talking, talking, and that's simply it, kicking a can down the street, talking about developing a pro proposal to make the age of 12, which is far below the 14. We're talking about 12-year-olds, we're talking about kids that are still packing their lunches and going to primary school. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this is Victoria we're talking about, right? That's correct, but they're looking at setting it as a 12. So as we know, the ACT have taken the, you know, the bull by the horn, so to speak, and what they've done is they've gone nuts. Um, you know, 14, that's it. That's what the medical evidence said. That's what over 100, you know, different groups and community groups and medical experts have said, and that's what they're going with. So the proposal is that they're looking at, you know, this very sort of national 12. Too young. In, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, if we've learned anything, we know that prisons don't rehabilitate. And, you know, the studies have shown that, you know, incarceration is no more effective than, you know, a community-based order. And unfortunately, as I said, we are talking about primary school-aged children that, you know, are still developing. Their brains are still developing. They're still, you know, going through all their very childlike behaviours. And it's, it's extremely disappointing. And, you know, it's just really paying lip service to something that's so significant in you know, in every young person's life, isn't Canberra doing fourteen years? They are. Yep. Yep. The ACT have decided that they're listening. They are listening to the medical evidence. Um, you know, and they are going to go with fourteen. They are not going to go with twelve. They are not going to go with anything less. They are going with fourteen. I don't know what's happening with Victoria at the moment, Leanne. It really is very disappointing. It is. And, you know, when, when we're talking about, you know, well, some people say, well, why 14, not, you know, 12? And, you know, we know that prisons, 
prisons are, um, you know, as I said, they're very traumatic places. And when we're talking about these particular kids that are going in, we're talking about kids that have already got a lot of trauma. Kids have, you know, more than likely been removed from their home, been out of home care, you know, experienced family violence, experienced trauma, experienced abuse. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the absolute youngest of children that should never be subjected to the criminal justice system. And as I said, 12-year-olds, they're still, they're still in primary school. And, you know, they're developing mentally, physically, emotionally, you know, and it's it's just super crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, you know, when, when we think about these very young children as well, you know, they're going to be subjected to strip searches, to isolation, and, you know, it makes them much more vulnerable to harm because their brains are still developing and, the you know, the criminal justice system is more than likely to cause, you know, much more lifetime developmental trauma. How on earth can you celebrate the closing the gap agreement and the establishment in Victoria, as you say, in the media release, of the first Australian Truth and Justice Commission while simultaneously filling prisons with Aboriginal children? You can't. You absolutely cannot. I mean... You know, we, we listen we listen to medical evidence around COVID and what's best. And here we have here we have so many doctors, so many medical with expert advice saying that twelve is too young. Fourteen is the very minimum. You cannot celebrate closing the gap whilst you're still locking up kids. You cannot do it. Yeah, look, it's 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 not possible, and what's even more disappointing is that it's not even being debated in Parliament yet, is it? It's only a proposal. It's all a proposal, and and that's the you know that's the really frustrating thing is that this proposal it's a fake proposal. It's not real. It is not real. It is nothing you know but an announcement. It's it is an attempt to say to the public, you know. We're serious. We we want to address, you know, everyone's concerns about, you know, young people staying out of prison and, you know. But in all reality, it's just a discussion about making perhaps, you know, something that may not eventuate. And it's time to push back. It's time to push back. 12, 12 years old is not good enough. It is not good enough for what we've been fighting for. And if you look at the statistics, right, if they decided to go, okay, let's release all kids, right, up to ages between 10, as it currently is, right, and 12, as they're proposing, you'd still have 91.38% of kids in custody. That's how much of a difference this would make. 91% of those kids that, you know, were in custody would still be in custody if they changed it to 12. It would not have any impact whatsoever. Absolutely. And and also, not to mention the fact also that, um, you know, young people present with multiple needs, disabilities, trauma, um, and more likely to, subject to child protection orders. Absolutely. Stolen generation. And, <laughs> that's it. And, you know, these kids, they're very, you know, these are very, very young kids. They're often, you know, disengaged with school. They're often out of home, you know, out of home. They've, um, you know, more than likely got a disability, you know, if not alcohol fetal syndrome or, you know, an intellectual or a cognitive impairment of some sort. These are the sort of kids that we are locking up. Correct. Yep. And, you know, Leanne, I'm, I don't know if we can connect this. I mean, I certainly see this as a very deep connection in that I was speaking to Dr Maria O'Sullivan um, prior to your interview in regards to the pandemic bill in its current yep. form and we were talking a, a little bit about concerns in regards to, you know, discrimination um, of certain communities, looking at protest not being an essential thing. Could this pandemic bill impact um, Aboriginal children? This pandemic bill has the current bill. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Talk to me about that. Okay. We've already got 
we've already got a group of vulnerable kids, right? Now, when we're talking about, um, you know, when we're talking about further, uh, further isolating experiences, when we're talking about young children, for example, um, that are homeless, that are transient, that don't feel safe where they are, that get picked up, that get brought into custody, that are then placed in custody, which is further isolating, which isn't geared, the prison system is not geared to deal with complex needs or disabilities of children in particular that are often impacted by trauma. Mm. So the impact, as we've seen, kids being social, kids are social, right? Yeah. And we know they like to get out. They know, you know, they like to go to school. Some do, some don't. But they like to hang out with friends. And they're very, very social creatures. Now, the, the impact that we've seen through the legal services, you know, in particular, is that these young people that are coming into custody, they are struggling with mental health. They are struggling with disability. They are struggling right around. So the pandemic has exacerbated you know, the lack of connection and the lack of being able to go out and see friends and, you know, have that connectedness. So yeah. anything that further impacts on these young people in particular is going to have a detrimental impact to them. Yeah, because I wonder, I mean, I'd really like to explore sometimes with this current bill whether, whether you know, it, it reaches out to prisons and, and juvenile, you know, young people in prison. As well, how how can we um, improve conditions in terms of a, when there's a virus up, outbreak? We shouldn't be locking people up in the first place. No, especially not you know not children. Not children. You know, prison should be the very last resort, the absolute last resort. And you know, it's extremely rare that children, particularly under the age of fourteen, are arrested for serious crimes, which you know. When, when I've had this discussion with people before, they've been like, well, what happens to serious crimes? It's very rare that young people in particular, you know, commit very, very serious crimes. And as with children under 14, you know, they've got, as I said, like, they've got the additional vulnerabilities and trauma. And prison is much more harmful and it's not a helpful, you know, a helpful response to any unlawful behaviour. And it hasn't changed. Prison does not change behaviour. Diversion programs, justice reinvestment, putting resources into ACOs. And I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, um, talk determination and community-led, community have fantastic ideas. ACOs have fantastic ideas. Unfortunately, they're extremely under-resourced. And when people go and make decisions or decide that, you know, that, they're going to perhaps make this proposal, this fake proposal, it, you know, it's only to the detriment of the, you know, to our children. And all it's going to do is increase the rate of um, over-representation already. Absolutely. I mean, not only is there over-policing, but you, we've also got, you know, we, we live in a colonised land. And, yep. you know, there, there are no programs for for young Aboriginal children. And on top of it, I mean, what can we do to, to help to make that proposal a reality? One, we can get behind raising the age, along with all the, you know, coalition and educating people around what it actually means. You know, because one of the things that have come out is people are actually really quite shocked when they learn that young people, you know, as young as, you know, 14 or whatever, can be locked up. But what we need to do is we need to, you know, put our resources and expand, you know, expand and strengthen the current existing programs that we do have, the ones that have been shown they work. But the biggest thing we need to do is we need to change our thinking. And when I had a discussion about, you know, raising raising the age a few um, you know, a few weeks ago to a panel, I was saying that we've just changed our public drunkenness laws, right? They're getting changed. Okay. Now, if we can change our way of thinking about how we view public drunkenness and not yeah. have a legal response, but have a medical response, then why can't we do the same with children? Ah, why yes. can't we change our thinking about having a social and a health response and not a one-size-fits-all? 
because every young person is very different, but we need to tailor those changes and that way of thinking to a real strength base because we are dealing with young kids traumatised, you know, often traumatised, often exposed then, you know, to really damaging custodial um, remand centres. As you say, putting, putting young people, putting anyone in custody whilst there's a pandemic is just outrageous. It's extremely outrageous and, you know, one of the things that I, I worry about quite extensively as a radio broadcaster and also as a human rights activist is our Aboriginal people being discriminated against um, because of the pandemic bill and the over-policing. We have over-policing of vulnerable communities enough as it is. And also in terms of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, um, you know, the, those recommendations that, um, have not been upheld. And that's part of raising the age, isn't it, in a sense? Absolutely. And when you were saying about closing the gap before, remember they set the youth targets, and the youth targets were meant to be, I think it's by 2030. Mm-hmm. And there's a plan, you know, to half the number of kids, young people that are in custody. Now, if they raise the age they'd halve that rate already. There yep. goes half your rate of closing the gap. You know, that's that's just one initiative. We can sit and sit and sit and talk here. Like, you know, when, when we're talking about the Royal Commission, and a lot of our mob know this, when we're talking about any commission, any paper, any submission, everyone feels tired. They feel so, so tired, one, because we've led the fight. Our community has continued to lead the fight on many, many issues that impact our community. But where we get tired is that we give everything to these submissions and to the commissions and we feel like they get shelved, right? And only some parts of it come out. Now, when we're talking about making huge changes and changes that, you know, impact our next generation, we, we can't just... We can't just be talking about it anymore. We've got to make the changes. We're talking about the most vulnerable next generation of kids. You know, these kids are our next generation. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And we we don't want these kids ending up institutionalised. We don't want these kids as another, you know, wave of second generation, uh, second stolen generation. I mean, you know, there's so many of these kids that we deal with on a daily basis. And when we deal with these kids, these are out-of-home care kids. These are kids that have a significant amount of comorbid issues going on. And let's not take away that intersectionality. They are still our young Aboriginal child. But that goes without saying that no child, no child should be getting imprisoned and definitely not at the age of 12 and at the very minimum at the age of 14. You know, what, what, what's happening to Victoria? I mean, I'm, I'm almost frightened that... This is probably going to sound really extreme, but I don't want it to be like Joe Bjorki-Peterson in Queensland. It's funny when... I don't know, look, I don't like it. And when you look on social media, and social media is just more stressful than the work, I think, some days, because people say... Well, you know, um, raising the age isn't going to do much or, you know, Aboriginal people already get a lot. Yeah. You know, all these handouts and it's sort of, there's such, there is a lot of racism and whether people want to call it out or admit it or not, there is. And when we're talking about treatment and following processes and things like that, quite often they get missed with our mob. That's how we get deaths in custody because processes and proper health care don't take place. And it'd be absolutely shocking if we end up with a young person as a death in custody. Extremely shocking. Yep. Yep. And well, yeah, thank you. Know. That's great. Do you have any final comments that you're going to say something just now before we finish? <gasps> no. I mean, I suppose, you know, we would encourage everyone to actually look. Have a look at Raising the Edge. See what it's about. It's not just, you know, some people will say, oh, it's about Aboriginal kids. No, it's not. It's about every child. It's about every child should be able to reach their full potential and to be able to live healthy and make good choices. We're talking about primary school kids. Have a look at the um, 
what the campaign's about and actually get behind it. Don't just go and sign your name on the campaign, but learn what it's about and support all the members. And that's over 100 different, you know, coalition members that have put their name to this and are arguing that, you know, sporting at the, at, you know, at the minimum. Exactly. 14 at the minimum. Yep. And if you want any more information, by all means, contact the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and we'll be happy to provide you with any of the mailing lists or places that you can sign up and get on, you know, the campaign and other things that are going on. Leanne, thank you so much for coming onto the program and I'm sure we'll be having you back. I mean, I don't think... Um, genocide and dispossession are going to be going away anytime soon. No, and we're definitely in for the long haul. We're in for the long fight on this. Absolutely. Thanks so awesome. much. You have a good. You have a good afternoon. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Hi everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we have about a minute to go before I'm out of here. And stay tuned for the Doing Time show every Monday from 4 to 5. And also I'd like to thank all our guests for coming onto the show. Stay strong and take care of each other. And keep up the fight. Bye. Oh, no, no, no. 
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.